This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life by Natasha Leonard. Being Numerous shatters the mainstream consensus on politics and personhood offering in its place a bracing analysis of a perilous world and how we should live in it. Beginning with an interrogation of what it means to fight fascism, Natasha Leonard explores the limits of individual rights, the criminalization of political dissent, the myths of radical sex, and the ghosts in our lives. At once politically committed and philosophically capacious, Being Numerous is a revaluation of the idea that the personal is political and situates as the central question of our time, how can we live a non-fascist life? Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life by Natasha Leonard, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. There is perhaps no more depressing situation in Western Europe than that which prevails in Italy, a coalition government between the far-right Lega Party and the now subordinate, bizarre, amorphously anti-corruption, internet fetishist, pseudo-directly democratic, five-star movement. In other words, Italian politics is dominated by a viciously racist anti-immigrant politics. The left, along with most traditional forces, is in disarray. Today, Lega, led by Interior Minister Matteo Salvini, runs Italian politics. And after the recent EU elections, they also form part of a sizable block of far-right parties in the EU parliament. But the bad news is also, I guess, the good news. Salvini has not solved Italy's deep-rooted economic problems, and so it's quite possible that the very same instability that abetted his rise will ultimately lead to his downfall. I'm discussing this all today with David Broder, Marta Fana, and also Lorenzo Zamponi. This is the final installment of our five-part series on European politics that has run over the last two weeks. Part one was an overview of the situation with Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose. After that, we had Grace Blakely, Maya Goodfellow, and Richard Seymour on the UK. Then, the French situation with Daniello Bonneau and Sebastian Budgen. And the last episode, before this one, was an interview on Spanish politics with Carlos del Clos and Magda Bandera. Okay, before we get this rolling, this is the part of my introduction where I transcend the fourth wall and ask you to support this podcast that you listen to with a small amount of your money. Your support at patreon.com slash the dig is what makes this entire series on European politics and indeed every episode of the dig possible. And it's what makes it possible for us to make it all available for free, unpaywalled to 
to everyone. Your contributions also built our new website, thedigradio.com, which, as I've mentioned before, has all of our episodes, the entire archives, searchable by guest and by topic. And now we are spending a really big chunk of money on transcribing every new episode and every episode, or maybe almost every episode, in our archive. And we just posted our very first transcript that we finished, my interview with Sam Stein on real estate capitalism. We also, of course, have left-wing books to send you in the mail if you contribute $10 a month or more. But the main reason I'd like you to donate is simply because you should support the left-wing media you consume if you can afford to do so, because we are putting that money to very good use. So if you can't afford to contribute but haven't done so already, please do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's David Broder, Lorenzo Zamponi, and Marta Fana. David Broder is the Europe editor for Jacobin, an editor at Jacobin Italia, and a historian of French and Italian communism, currently writing a book on the crisis of Italian democracy in the post-Cold War period. Lorenzo Zamponi is an assistant professor of sociology at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence, working on social movements and political participation, and a co-editor of Jacobin Italia. Marta Fana is a researcher in economics, the author of It's Not Work, It's Exploitation, and an editor of Jacobin Italia. David Broder, Lorenzo Zamponi, and Marta Fana, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you. Across Europe, the far right did well in the recent EU elections, though not, not as well as many feared. The left did really poorly. In Italy, however, things were somehow even worse than really poor. The far right was overwhelmingly dominant, both Liga and also a smaller party that I hadn't heard of before, Brothers of Italy, and the radical left was was really nowhere at all. Though the center-left Democratic Party did do somewhat better than expected. What happened in Italy in particular and across Europe in general? Lorenzo. I think that the, um, the success of the Lega in Italy is probably the vanguard okay, of uh, a right-wing offensive at the European level. I'm not sure that we can find like a transversal tendency to read the whole European uh, election as one same thing, although it's true that some ongoing tendencies, like as the crisis of the mainstream parties, both in conservatives and in center-left terms, uh, is going on, uh, and the people who are somehow uh, getting uh, a profit out of it are far-right parties and uh, uh, liberal democratic parties. Okay, I think we're witnessing more or less the Le Pen versus Macron model in France is becoming more or less the rule uh, throughout Europe. 
we are sadly the vanguard of the nationalist right uh, at this point. And I think uh, it's a very clear example of what we've been seeing also in other countries in which uh, the antagonization of the Democratic Party because of the identification uh, of the center-left with neoliberal policies has opened a huge space for the far right uh, to represent more or less uh, a populist alternative to, to any kind of neoliberal policy. Okay, It's kind of paradoxical, the fact that the League, who is a party who has been in the government in the Berlusconi-led coalition, so Okay, for decades, who actually implemented neoliberal reforms in Italy, are now the vanguard of anti-austerity, anti-neoliberal uh, political expression. But that's the, the country which we live at this point, okay? David, Marta? I mean, in Europe as a whole, the growth for the far right, I think, has somewhat been exaggerated. I mean, look at this specific election. Uh, I think the real breakthrough of far right parties was actually in 2014, uh, so this time we saw uh, all of the sort of far right things of national conservatives to Eurosceptics and then sort of post-fascist parties across the EU rose from 21 to 23 percent. So obviously, you know, that's very bad. And certainly given the weakness of the left, it's evident that the far right is becoming the strongest uh, sort of counter systemic force. But I think the, the results for the far right sort of around Europe are, are quite patchy. Uh, if we think like even, say, to take the French case, uh, the Front National, or now it's called Rassemblement National, came first place among all parties, but its vote actually fell slightly. And looking at the Italian case, I, mean, I think what's interesting is that there is really like no sign of recovery or really anything going on on the, on the radical left. But I think there's a certain a certain strangeness of the, the Italian case is that although you could say that the Lega versus PD is something like the Macron versus Le Pen situation playing out again in Italy, the particular format text is in a way something of a reassertion of the classic centre-left, centre-right divide of the 1990s and 2000s in the sense that most of the growth in the Lega's vote comes from the fact that it's eating up the support from other centre-right parties, most notably Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, uh, you know, the parties with which uh, it stood in alliance before the 2018 general election. And so while it's true that there is something of a, of a major vote based on you know, criticism of EU-imposed austerity and sort of more generally drawing on a kind of well of resentment and despair caused by Italy's sort of ongoing economic stagnation. I'd question like how much of the far-right bloc in Italy is really coming from working class or former left-wing voters. Uh, at the same time, the, the, the tendency towards a center, to more traditional center-left and versus right-wing divide is really driven by the collapse of the five-star movement. Uh, in the annual election in March 2018, the five-star movement got percent and the Lega got 17 percent and in the May 2019 uh, European election after they've been in government together for about a year the scores were exactly re reversed and in national opinion polls we see the Lega which only has half as many seats as the uh, Five Star Movement now has doubled the, the support in the polls uh, and the, we also saw you know there were local elections over the weekend as well and we're really seeing that five, which had represented the third block of support in Italian politics, 
its challenge is fading very rapidly. So while that party in particular incarnated a uh, revolt against the old parties, maybe had the more like working class and younger electorate, its vote is now uh, fading away, partly in favour of the far right, but also a lot of it's just going to abstention. Marta? I agree with uh, both Lorenzo and David on this uh, kind of peculiarity of the Italian um, uh, vote in the sense that what have been a uh, flow from the Five Star Movement to the League Nord and at the same time this renewal vote for the Democratic Party is that we actually are not even in this populistic mo moment. But also if we got and we look at the absolute value of votes actually, uh, the Democratic Party is not getting more votes than before, uh, especially if we look at the last uh, European election, but also to the uh, general election uh, elections uh, last year. At the same time, what we as uh, and face actually is that the difference between the, this big rhetoric of the League Nord against austerity or uh, the European Commission and what the real content of the uh, policies and proposals uh, are since historically the League Nord has been one of the pillars of the Berlusconi uh, government so far and still they are within uh, this uh, neoliberal and uh, pro-austerity and uh, pro-rich um, economic uh, and social policies. So what what is the current state of the Italian radical left and why has it been utterly unable to capitalize on both this acute and also long-running economic crises to, to mobilize people around working-class identity as an alternative to the far-right's racist, civilizational, nationalist Italian identity? I think that there are obviously different reasons behind this, uh, this process. There are some reasons which are internal to the radical left. The fact that basically the Italian radical left were never really able to recover uh, its huge crisis in 2008, okay, when it formed for the first time a united uh, electoral cartel called uh, the Rainbow Left, who got only 3% of the votes, wow. while together the pre-existing parties got more than 10%, okay, and it never were actually able to recover from that, okay, and, and there are obviously internal uh, distinctions and divisions and rivalries that made it really difficult. Then there is a more um, institutional reasons, which is the fact that uh, the peculiar electoral system of Italian elections forces uh, parties to be part of uh, electoral coalitions before the campaign starts. So basically, there has been always this element of division between the different leftist parties on whether to ally or not with the Democratic Party. And this has been something which has been an internal cleavage dividing every leftist attempt in the last 10 years, okay? Should we be part of the center-left and aim at governing, or should we form an electoral alternative to that? Um, and then, of course, there, is, there are also other more uh, societal reasons. On the one hand, the Five Star Movement has been an incredibly powerful competitor. Okay, they, the radical left uh, wasn't able to politicize the, on in a progressive sense anti-austerity mobilization between 2010 and 2012, and in that exact moment, the Five Star Movement 
somehow stole the thunder okay from the uh, radical left and was somehow able at least rhetorically to embody the idea of an anti-neoliberal anti-neoliberal alternative at this point okay the the result of uh, the european election is was not really that unexpected okay it's only an extreme occurrence of something we've already been witnessing for around 10 years, okay? The reduction of the Italian radical left to a residual and marginal space, uh, which is still able to play a role from a social point of view on the squares in terms of mobilization and cultural point of view and so on, but is not able to play any significant electoral role. And I think it's very significant the fact that, uh, according to different analysis, many of the traditional voters of the radical left this time directly voted for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party somehow embodied the opposition to Salvini. Okay, there is some kind of uh, two parts. That's the French. That's the French dynamic again. Yeah, I mean, not, not, yeah. It's basically the this idea of uh, the two-party system, which doesn't exist in reality, still exists in the mind of many voters. Okay, and even in elections which are played with a proportional representation system, there is this idea of we should stop their right from winning, and this is something which is an incredibly powerful force. And then, of course, the Five Star Movement, as David said earlier, uh, is in a big crisis, lost a lot of votes, but still it is a big party. It is a party that is governing and aims to go on governing. And if you are a voter which is in some way progressive, but not that politicized, it's still more likely that you then try and find representation in the Five Star Movement, although in government with a right-wing party, uh, than in the radical left. Marta, what, what what's your take? And is it fair to say that Five Star took up the space that a Podemos or La France Insoumise style left populism might have occupied in Italy? Actually, they did, uh, but with totally different um, claims and arguments and uh, political campaigns, if we want. So the idea of this uh, movement, or the Five Star movement, started Yes, as Podemos against corruption and overall uh, waste or uh, no, the, the losing credibility of the political institution and system and whatsoever, but they missed all the social arguments like Podemos or the Consensumis are always pushed until now, even if the, you know, the last uh, European election, but also the local elections for Podemos was not so good. At the same time, so I totally agree with uh, Lorenzo when he said, okay, since uh, 2008 and even before the radical left start splitting each six months or uh, a year. But uh, what we have to notice in Italy that we have as the last really big political and social organization is trade union. And trade union still plays a role in Italy. So the problem was that the radical left and trade unions, and mainly the CGL is a specific <laughs> trade union, the biggest one, actually did not campaign as they could since uh, the start of the crisis or the government of the crisis of this ideal recovery in which uh, the Italian um, economy uh, is living since 2012. And this, so this is a huge problem because you don't have, so not doing this, not campaigning on, I don't know, minimum wage, minimum income, uh, social welfare, or uh, stop outsourcing all our welfare system is something that doesn't take it doesn't increase any consensus 
consensus around topics that really unite the working class part. And today we have also the working class. So we have also the working class votes, so blue colors, and half of them, so one out of four work colors actually vote for the League Nord, who says, oh, we don't want to delocalize our offshore firms, but then they do. They let them do something like that. And uh, we have plenty of, um, of example uh, on this. At the same time, so the radical left in Italy has another problem since at least a decade. It is the credibility of people in leading these parties. And this has this is a problem because what we had is a shock, is a political shock in the electoral terms has been people saying, we don't want these people still govern. That it was uh, against the Democratic Party during the last general election and not for the le- radical left that was not even almost uh, in the government. And this is the first time we don't have representative of the European uh, Parliament. David, what, what's your take? As This discussion about Five Star reminds me of the interview we did last summer in terms of these really revealing problems with anti-corruption politics that are entirely anti-corruption politics and and sort of what sort of politics that adds up to in the end? Yeah, so anti-corruption politics have uh, a quite long history in in Italy because even at the start of the 1990s, uh, what destroyed the old Christian Democratic and Socialist parties was a corruption scandal, the trials of uh, Tangentopoli, uh, so-called Bribesville, uh, affair, which saw more than half of MPs under investigation. Uh, and actually, that was really key to the initial rise of the Lega Nord, uh, partly also with its northern chauvinist uh, politics, uh, in the sense of seeing Rome as a hotbed of corruption and giving out money to la- lazy southerners and so on, whereas Italy needed a, a, a modernized, but kind of also Thatcherite uh, economic order and state machine. Some of the same ideas were adopted by the Five Star Movement and by its guru, Gian Roberto Casaleggio, uh, who in fact used to hang out in uh, Lega circles in the 1990s. And what's this technocrat- this uh, anti-corruption politics always had a very kind of technocratic and depoliticizing edge. So as Magda said, Five Star Movement never connected anti-corruption or its kind of anti-elitist politics to an alternative sort of vision of like investment or creating jobs or social problems or austerity. Uh, it was much more focused on sort of getting rid of ideology and politics and politicians uh, and returning to some imagined sort of normal or apolitical administration. Uh, of course, in alliance with the Lega Nord party with a much stronger identity, much stronger agenda and leader. Uh, Five Star Movement has really crumbled. Um, so in, in the government, together with the Lega, we've seen such things as, for instance, when Salvini himself came under uh, criminal investigation uh, for his role for basically keeping uh, migrants hostage by refusing to allow a ship to dock. Whereas the Five Star Movement's initial agenda for cleaning up politics uh, would have demanded that its MPs automatically vote for him to be uh, put on trial. They instead didn't because they didn't want to split the coalition because they're afraid of flipping elections. More recently, there was a, a different scandal involving a Lega transport minister where the Five Star Movement took a, a harder line. Uh, but certainly it's, and also, you know, some of its own officials have come under investigation. So this like anti-corruption or cleaning up politics agenda hasn't really allowed it to maintain a consistent political space. 
it's important to, for example, to highlight that the last regional and local election in the south of Italy, and especially, uh, specifically Sicily, that has always been governed by the, the right, in which during the last general elections, the Five Star Movement got the 52%, right? So first big party there. But four months before, still, it was the center-right and the Berlusconi party who won the election, meaning that there was really a crash. And this ideology and idea, and so if you want narrative, according to which Rome is the problem, but still we can uh, make things better, uh, still governing like we are, meaning uh, patronage clientelism and even uh, organized crime, is okay. And at the same time, what is so the difference in terms of your first question about difference with Podemos, Five Star Movement against Podemos, is that the Five Star Movement in this sense always plays an interclassist role in the sense that they asked for the introduction of this uh, strange and not real minimum income system for, for the South, but in the North, it was always, we have to reduce the tax burden for firms, we have to um, firms be free to invest and get rid of all these uh, bureaucratic and administrative burden and whatsoever. So there was a, a clear interclassist uh, rhetoric that Podemos never had pushing exactly the anti-corruption uh, movement and uh, question and issues in class terms, meaning that corruption is such thing that reduced investment for social security or social infrastructure and whatsoever. This is uh, an interesting, in my point of view, uh, uh, an, an interesting difference between them. Why is it that Five Star has, has so quickly become subordinated to Lega in the coalition government? Yeah, that's a very interesting case. Also because um, the First Star Movement are basically a very rare case of pure populism. Uh, usually in the last few years, we have seen left-wing populists, right-wing populists, different kinds of populism. Uh, the Five Star Movement really tried to embody the pure form of digital populism. The idea that uh, the only like techno populism exactly an idea of techno populism in which mobilizing uh, the common people through the internet against the political elite was the beginning and the end of every political discourse okay obviously these made their discourse very effective and and also able to do something that uh, was usually uh, very difficult in Italian politics, which was the idea of attracting votes both from left and right-wing voters, okay? Italian voters tended traditionally to be rather conservative in the sense of always voting on the same side. The idea of switching left to right and vice versa has always been very rare. In Italian politics, the Pfizer movement was were really the first party who were able, okay, to attract votes in this uh, transversal cross-ideology uh, way. But obviously, when, as David said earlier, when you put them together in a government with a party that has a very clear political identity, a very clear ideology, and not responsibility whatsoever, okay, because uh, the, the Lega does not have any position or real responsibility in the government, does not hold the minister for the economy, does not hold the foreign minister, okay. Salvini, the leader of the league, is a minister of interior. He uses this position only to go around dressed as a policeman, okay. He's basically cosplaying as a policeman every day. <laughs> and that's the only way he does as minister for, for interior. And so the, the league is really um, free to act as a 
24-7 propaganda machine. While the first argument is occupied trying to govern, actually trying to govern in a quite inefficient way, okay, because of the lack of preparation and because, of course, of the ideological ambiguity that characterizes them of every on every possible issue. In this way, the league is really being able to cannibalize every kind of uh, every kind of consensus. And obviously, the faster movement is also uh, paying a lack of leadership. Okay, Luigi Di Maio, the official leader of the uh, faster movement, is nothing comparable uh, to Salvini in terms of charisma, in terms of capacity to well to embody any political symbol, any political struggle, any challenge to everyone. Okay. Also, if you do what the faster movement have been trying to do for years, as David and Marta said earlier, it was depoliticizing everything, depoliticizing anti-corruption scandals, depoliticizing environmental issues, and, and so on, you end up really leaving space for the only existing political topic in 2019 Italian politics, which is the immigration, which is the issue that belongs structurally to the league. And in this way, they, they were really able uh, to open uh, the way for the league. As David said earlier, the league did not increase so much the, um, the spectrum of right-wing voters in general, but they were able to attract all the traditional right-wing voters, stealing all the support that used to belong to Berlusconi's own party. He was especially visible in the South. But it's incredible. Now the, the 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 league is the largest party in Emilia Romagna, which used to be the reddest region, okay, in Italy, with a very strong communist heritage. Is the second party with more than 33% of the votes in Tuscany and had the traditionally red regions. It was able to conquer many mayors in many different traditionally leftist cities. Okay, it's really an an increasing uh, movement on the rise. And this is something that, on, on the one hand, it suggests the idea that Salvini uh, may withdraw his support to the existing government in order to govern on his own. On the other hand, why should he bother? He's already in charge without any kind of responsibility. So the idea of letting the Five Star Movement take the blame for, for everything that actually happens and at the same time, okay, exploiting the fact of being in the government for this huge propaganda machine is a very favorable position for them. David, Marta? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that's um, funny is that the general election was last uh, March, and it was a surprise that the Lega overtook Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party. All of the polls had been slightly behind, but in fact, the Lega, for the first time, became the biggest uh, right-wing party nationally. And then you had three months of uh, negotiations for the coalition. Then we had the uh, the Lega's candidate for the finance minister uh, rebuffed by the president, uh, Sergio Mattarella. And that moment of crisis was basically the moment when the Lega came to dominate the government, because the sense of it being under attack from the European Union and the strong powers in the state and the sort of Christian democratic president and so on, you know, already by that moment, the Lega was catching up with the Five Star Movement, and already at that point, which is you know last June, it would have been disastrous for the Five Star Movement to not make the pact with the Lega and to go to the polls again, because the Lega's position was so strengthened, and we've basically seen the whole period since 
the Lega has been able to blackmail the Five Star Movement, uh, as well, of course, the things that Lorenzo says I, I agree with very much. Um, it's been very weak. So, for example, like um, kind of communications or sort of taking credit even for sort of right-wing or anti-immigrant policies. So, for instance, as Interior Minister, uh, when Salvini announced on Twitter the government closing the ports, in order for that to actually happen, he needs decision to be made by the, trans, uh, the Transport and Infrastructure Minister, Danilo Toninelli, who's a member of the Five Star Movement. But the way it plays out, it's like the Toninelli, the Five Star guy, he like sort of implements Salvini's decision, but allows him to, but allows Salvini to take credit for it. So it just shows himself to be kind of totally sort of subaltern to his agenda. At the same time, you know, I think what we we, you know, we were talking before about uh, anti-corruption and the, the former, you know, the Lega Nord's former rhetoric around the corrupt South. And, you know, Marta mentioned the clientelism and patronage structures, which have so often characterized politics in southern Italy. Uh, but what's interesting is now that the Lega is becoming a truly nationwide party, you know, in the election, in the general election last year, it stood in every region. And now it's winning support in once left wing regions, but also in southern regions. The kind of people who are joining its new branches, you know, as it selects candidates, as it creates party sections, there are people who are coming from Berlusconi's party. They're coming from post-fascist groups, but also that you know they're coming from the worlds of organised crime. The people who are sort of old, you know, Christian democratic bosses from the 70s and 80s. So you're seeing exactly the political layers that the Lega Nord used to stand against are in fact now becoming its cadres uh, in the southern regions. And that's allowing Salvini's party to, to create a, a very strong political force that's dominating the, the right-wing bloc, uh, but also, of course, represents a certain contradiction within its uh, self-presentation. A contradiction that there is the result of it successfully representing the, the consolidation of the Italian right. Yeah, but at the same time, it, that's not to say that it's entirely abandoned its uh, sort of northern chauvinist soul. Uh, you know, there's a, it has a proposal, uh, the others will be better able to speak about it in detail than I am. But, you know, it, 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 so there's this idea of differentiated autonomy where they, are, they still want to give more tax powers to the northern regions, heartlands of the Lega, like uh, Veneto, the region north of uh, Venice, the Lombardy, where Milan is. At the same time, they've made some quite curious deals with uh, sort of regionalists also in uh, regions outside of the north, uh, most notably in uh, Sardinia. So they're actually trying to push more autonomy also from the southern and poorer regions. Just to clarify briefly, we went over this in our interview last year, David, but for those who don't know, the Liga was the Liga Nord, the Northern League, and their project was a secessionist one premised on northern superiority, economic and even racial against the against southern Italy. Uh, what David says is really important, especially on the network of clientelism and patronage in the south. Okay, There is the usual bandwagon effect with these local powers always looking for the strong party to support, the party who has the chances to be in the government for a long time, to be able to provide the resources on which the networks are based and so on. And obviously there is the contradiction that David was pointing out between this rhetoric of the differentiated autonomy and the fact that they are actually going uh, for the southern vote. Although the Lega has always been very good at promising autonomy without 
ever delivering anything. Okay, we're talking about a party who called for independence, secessions, or federalism and autonomies for 20 years without delivering any single reform in more than 20 years in the government. Okay, and that's what they're trying to do at the same time, keeping alive this idea of uh, regional autonomy, of tax powers and so on in a rhetorical level, but actually never really thinking about delivering like that. Also because what they're promising is to allow, especially two regions, as David was saying, Lombardy and Veneto, to keep in the local level 90% of their tax revenues. Now, no country in the world would be able to close any kind of budget with the two richest regions keeping at the local level 90% of the tax revenues. It's virtually impossible, okay? So it's something that they keep alive in order to uh, maintain their local support, okay? But it has no possibility whatsoever to be approved. Marta, is it fair to say that the coalition with Five Star for Liga has ultimately been a bridge for for Liga taking over Five Star's voter base in the South? Yes and no, in the sense that uh, the weakness of the five-star movement in governing, so the, the lack of experience and uh, even non-political ideas, as uh, we already say, is something that for sure uh, enabled the Lignor to take over. But what really takes this um, strength, actually gives strength to, to Lignor, is what Lorenzo was saying, meaning that we have this bourgeoisie bloc in the South that always voted for the Berlusconi party that need public expenditure and needs someone uh, in the government to give them this money. And in fact, something that Salvini is doing for them is not the autonomy and the secessionist laws that are not there, are proposal but not really voted, is to allow for more public budget to go under public procurement without limits, no? In the sense that we don't have to negotiate, but we can go through direct procurement and, for example, subcontracting uh, could increase. This means that for a firm to control the territory and the economic dependency of the territory is higher, right? So there is this exchange, which is an exchange on the center-right, never-ending uh, economic policy, if you want, in terms of uh, economic spending. And what is real of uh, Lorenzo's argument, actually, is that in this uh, secessionist and this uh, differentiated uh, autonomy and the welfare state, uh, so how we finance uh, the welfare state, is that in any case, what they are cutting with this kind of differentiated autonomia is exactly the welfare state. Because in terms of revenue from corporate firms and uh, in general businesses, the tax has already been reduced. So it's a matter of fact that's going against uh, the working class. So in this sense, the League Nord is still playing this strong neoliberal and conservative politics. I want to talk more about migration, which is obviously, as we've alluded to multiple times, is at the center of what's going on in Italian politics right now, because a certain determinism often takes hold in discussions about anti-immigrant politics. We heard that from Hillary Clinton, I think, last year, as if there's like a natural, almost hydrological law at work, whereby the mere existence of migrants automatically provokes xenophobia. But this, of course, is not the whole story. There's always political and economic context. So my question is, how is it that that anti-migrant politics have emerged, developed as not so much a, but the dominant political force 
in Italy? I think that there is no direct link between the presence of migrants and the politicization of immigration. This has been analyzed through loads of studies, and and even you see it even in the electoral results. Okay, the the league got hundreds of thousands of votes in areas of the country in which there are virtually no immigrants, okay? In villages in the middle of the countryside, in areas of the south, in Sardinia, which has basically no immigrants, okay, but only emigrants, only people who leave from me to go in the rest of the country and, and outside. There has been a great uh, propaganda effort uh, in the media to try and portray migrants as uh, uh, the big enemy. And I think that this has really much to do, on the one hand, with what we were discussing earlier, the failure of the left to politicize the crisis in order to make the economic elite into the real political enemy, and then uh, the following failure of the five-star movement who identified the political elite in the political enemy, okay? And I think that the, the final narrative of the Northern League, which and now the League, uh, which is the idea that migrants are the enemy and not simply migrants, okay? Migrants with these whole conspiracy theories of the NGOs working together with Soros and the EU in order to ethnically substitute uh, Italians and transform our DNA in something different and so on and so forth, okay? <laughs> the, and the, the great replacement. Exactly, exactly, the Kalergi plan, the great replacement, all these weird conspiracy theories uh, are something that provided a recognizable narrative, okay? And a lot of people in times of economic hardship and social disintegration need to know what's going on. And uh, there is a factor that we don't take into account many times, and it's the fact that... Uh, Silvio Berlusconi still owns half the national TV channels in Italy. We've been obsessing about that man for 20 years. Now he's not been in power for five years, and it seems like we've forgotten he ever existed. But he's still there, okay? And during the last electoral campaign, when he still thought, as David said earlier, that the league was a minor ally of uh, his coalition, he used massively... TV in order to build this anti-immigration frenzy, okay? And now, of course, it's playing against him. And as David said earlier, the league has become the big actor on the right. But Berlusconi's TV had a huge role in that. And a huge role in that was also played by the center-left. The Democratic Party never had the capacity to develop a firm stance on immigration. It went back and forth between a humanitarian, cosmopolitic attitude that we should be welcoming, okay? And the attempt to play the law and order card, the tough on immigration card, and uh, compete uh, with the league on immigration. Never really challenging, okay, the core of the Salvini's argument. And, and this is what was mobilized. And there is no correlation between the presence of migrants and the increase of the far right. And this is very clear because Still, Italy is not the European country which is most severely uh, involved in immigration. Sure, it is a country of first arrival for many people, but most of these people are aiming to go somewhere else, okay? They didn't leave uh, their home countries in order to get into a country with huge levels of unemployment, obviously. Then, of course, also the EU is to blame. EU, the European Union policies 
have been incredibly unfair and controversial in the handling of immigration, especially the Dublin Treaty, which uh, uh, requires uh, asylum seekers to stay in the country in which they were first identified, creating huge problems also because most of the people do not have the goal to stay in Italy. They want to go away. But at the same time, of course, they helped create this huge conspiratory narrative that the EU is sending all these migrants here in order to invade us, okay? And I'm not saying that the majority of Italians believe this shit, obviously, okay? But there is a clear, understandable narrative that somehow it's easy to to have everything to fit in, okay? It's an, an explanation of the bad situation in which we're living. Sure. Yeah, now it's interesting that you note that it's also places with a lot of emigration rather than just places with immigrants where xenophobia has really taken root, because that's something I've thought about in the U.S., where there's a lot of xenophobia, including in places where they're not really that many immigrants. And it's also true in places like Hungary, where no migrants really want to go to at all. But a lot of Hungarians are leaving Hungary. A lot of Polish people are leaving Poland. And I think it really gets at this profound fear about the future, the possibility of efficacious social reproduction into the future that xenophobia really taps into and that doesn't necessarily even require the the actual presence of migrants. Exactly. There is this big fear of what's going on, okay? We are in times of uh, tremendous change, okay? Automation, technological innovation, globalization. There is this, uh, this scary idea of this brave new world. And in, in this, okay, if you are able to find the right enemy to blame, the black man, okay, which is coming to invade us and take uh, our place, okay? It's something that can really trigger uh, very aggressive responses. Marta? Just a follow up on that, and uh, I totally agree with Lorenzo's argument, but more if we take what the message from the TV was now was uh, was on for more than one year, because Salvini have been on TV during the last six years every day in more than one TV show. This actually makes that difference, you know. Uh, and in this sense, one of the arguments in order to understand why in highly uh, unemployed um, cities with no migrants at all, People are saying, okay, but why we have to pay 35 euros per day to these guys they are, that arrives actually, uh, and not in welfare state? So this was the claim. And of course, so the left never counteract on this argument doing something because we are in a kind of austerity-led economic policy since uh, two decades, not just since the crisis, but since the crisis, obviously this has been uh, more acute and uh, more aggressive. But it, Italy has a long running crisis, you're, you're saying, which I think is important to emphasize that that predates 2008. Yes, exactly. And actually, what we see from the economic statistics uh, and etc., labor market and uh, inequality, this crisis as a huge crisis started in 92, that is the same year we had this um, manipulated corruption, I don't know, a huge political scandal David was uh, mentioning. And it is exactly the year in which we had the last so aggressive economic crisis with the Lira devaluation and all the austerity programs started there in, uh, in magnitude. Okay, so in terms of uh, wages and uh, welfare and uh, whatsoever. So now, after the second huge crisis being the 2008, uh, people say, okay, oh, well, so our savings is not enough, are not enough to, no, to, to give uh, our kids a uh, university and etc. because we have a welfare system that is really poor compared to the European 
average. At the same time, there is all this rhetoric against uh, migrants and uh, exactly what uh, no, the, the allergy plan and uh, whatsoever that is uh, quite strange. But it's, at the same time, if we go into the policies that have been voted and passed, is the center left during the last government, so the Renzi and Gentiloni government that passed the laws against migrants in Italy and also the government of this kind of so, rhetoric crisis was there implemented as urgency, day-by-day emergence against migrants. David? We were talking before about um, the fact that it's not necessarily the areas where migrants are coming that are, that are the ones where this anti-migrant politics is on the rise. Uh, and indeed, in general, it's true that even before the current government came into power, the number of migrants arriving in Italy had drastically reduced. The previous centre-left government, and particularly its uh, interior minister, Marco Miniti, boasted of having reduced the number of arrivals by 87%. But of course, in so doing, that doesn't sort of appease the anti-migrant politics, uh, but, but just feeds it by continually proposing this as like the central aim and objective of the government and as the issue that most needs dealing with as well as the kind of law and order, this continual fear-mongering about migrants causing crime and, and rape and so on that uh, Lorenzo mentioned. Of course, I think the, the other reason why migrant poli- migration politics are so central also has to do with what Marta said about the, the length of the crisis and um, you know, the fact that you know, since the early 1990s, Italy has had dramatically less growth than its neighbours and you know, never really breaking out of much more than stagnation. Because even in the 1990s and 2000s, politics was very polarized around the figure of Berlusconi personally, the bringing of post-fascists back into government, and these kind of uh, identitarian issues coming to the foreground, as opposed to alternative plans for social and economic change. And I think that's also part of the reason why Italy has five star and not Podemos. Like partly it is to do with the, the fact that the radical left collapsed at the moment of the 2008 crisis, which was exactly the, you know, the years in which the five star movement was first emerging. So therefore five star kind of exploited a window of opportunity. But I think it also draws on a kind of deeper sort of sense of despair and a deeper sense of belief that the state can't do anything, that political action or sort of big projects aren't going to do anything to help people. So it's like the political debate just generally isn't really focused on or well focused on questions of economic recovery and the kind of practical steps uh, that might be made. There's a certain uh, cynicism that's conducive to the xenophobia and Euroscepticism that's not at all conducive to a left proposal to transform society and government. Yeah, for sure. Because if you look at the, I mean, it's often said that the five star movement is strong among younger voters. That was particularly true in its earlier phase uh, and is, was less true in the recent general election. But actually, also, it's, it's, I think it's worth noting that the, 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 the strongest vote for the five-star movement when it was at its peak wasn't among the youngest voters, but among people in their 40s. And I think part of the problem also from the kind of perspective of, you know, how 
does the radical left politicize the crisis or how do you start to build the basis of resistance to austerity is you have an ever greater section of the population who are like people who are in their 30s or 40s who like live with their parents who've had long periods of unemployment or perhaps even never had a job and it's very hard with that kind of you know it's hard to give people who've been through that kind of experience it's hard to build the bases of solidarity or to offer like realistic uh, solution so i think that's why the the, the five star movement's promise of a universal uh, income although Marta, I, I totally agree uh, with what she said it's a, a false promise it's very empty it's a small amount of money and it's something more like uh, payment for seeking work but I think the reason that the proposal had some cut through is that it was able to appeal to, you know, it was able to offer something kind of concrete material. And therefore, I think a, a certain part of the five star movements electorate was appealed to by that. Whereas with the same kind of voters, I think it would be harder to mobilize for a left wing party because it would be harder to give them the real belief that, you know, that that's that collective action, solidarity, labor movement, we're going to do something for them, literally just because they haven't got the experience of seeing it actually uh, happen. Lorenzo, Lega, of course, is both Eurosceptical and stridently, racistly anti-migrant, as, as we've mentioned just a few minutes ago. Is it this notion of establishment elites being treasonous to the, to the Italian people, working on behalf of, of outsiders, whether in Brussels or, or from Africa, is that what binds the two things together, the Euroscepticism and the xenophobia? Definitely. Although the the argument, the issue of Europe has been addressed in a very confusing way by all Italian parties. Uh, nobody's really sure what the Lega stands for regarding the EU. As being they they called for leaving the EU. Uh, a few years ago, then they said we will never leave. Now they campaign for let's change euros from within. The same really regards the Pfizer movement. They wanted to organize a referendum to uh, abandon the, the euro as a common currency a few years ago. While now they're saying, no, we want to get into European Parliament in order to change it from within and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, the, the main, they are more or less having the same attitude towards the EU that every Italian government had previously, the Democratic Party, but even Berlusconi behind before, the idea of we'll go to Brussels and we'll stamp our fist on the table and we will be able to negotiate on national interest, okay? Really ignoring uh, the need for dramatic, fundamental change in the European integration um, process. It's true that there is this anti-establishment uh, idea, the idea of the treasonous elite, which is trying to somehow keep, uh, keep together uh, racism, xenophobia, and Euroscepticism. And even beyond that, okay, there is the attempt to somehow resurrect Italian nationalism, okay? Italian nationalism has been uh, hidden, buried for decades. 
anti-fascist consensus after World War II basically uh, was forbidding everyone okay, to raise any issue that had never anything to do with uh, a case of nationalism. Berlusconi actually tried to resurrect it, the massive use of the national flag, uh, the acceptance of former fascist party uh, in the coalition and so on. And Salvini is actually betting on this, on the fact that actually you can be a nationalist in Italy. And if you are able to do it, it's pretty effective. This idea that Italians are somehow vaccinated, immune to nationalism because of what has been happening uh, after fascism in the last few decades is definitely not true. Italians are. I'm, I'm certainly not getting that impression. <laughs> uh, Italians are as attracted to nationalist rhetoric as any other country in the world, okay? And it's working. It's working. Marta, what, what, what's your take on Lega's approach to Europe? And is this shift from, you know, flirting with getting out of Europe to, to fighting within it, is it in part due to Salvini needing the EU as a punching bag for domestic purposes, like what happened with uh, last year's standoff over the Italian budget? Yes, in a sense, actually, uh, it's pure rhetoric in the sense, exactly. They said, no, we don't, we want to exit the Eurozone and we want to follow the European Commission and uh, we have to protect against. So the, the main point here as for uh, migrants is this external threat, threat, right? Always there. And uh, so we can do by ourselves if we stop uh, these enemies from above somehow. But then if you look, uh, all answers to the European Commission recommendation and uh, whatsoever is something that is purely in line with what the European Commission asks as a recommendation for Italy. It is more labor flexibilities, less welfare and um, something like that. So this is not changed between uh, the Berlusconi government, the democratic government, and now uh, this uh, League North Five Star movement um, uh, government, which means that now, so for example, the last take has been we want to issue these uh, small mini bonds in order to pay so the credit actually that firms have against the public administration, but in the end, it's just to turn a commercial debt into a pure uh, public debt. But at the same time, the real political standpoint and what is the main measure that the League Nord promises and try to get past actually is the flat tax. That is something against which the European Commission never said the word. So if, if you if you look at it, it's really like a cabaret, it's a, you know, a play and a game uh, they are still making without any structural change, even in the rhetorics and practice. David? I'm rather skeptical of the willingness of the Lega to uh, take Italy out of the euro, uh, particularly when we consider you know, that that would effectively mean default. I mean, notwithstanding the, the, the glue that nationalism provides and so on, you know, I don't think its voters want to see their savings uh, destroyed by default. I think the, um, the clash with um, Brussels over the budget deficit limit last year was instructive of the government's weakness and of the Labour's own weakness uh, and the mainly symbolic character of its clashes with uh, the European Union. In that sense, I think it's also interesting to think about, you know, even though Salvini is obviously a very strong leader and the Lega has radicalized over recent years, it's interesting to look at the Lega's past record in government. You know, you mentioned earlier, it used to be for the independence of Northern Italy, but at the same time as being 
in the government in Rome as a junior coalition partner for uh, to Berlusconi. And it constantly did the same thing, which is to like be the opposition within the government. So demanding more money for its own regions, uh, saying that it's being sold out and so on, while also actually trying to, to set the agenda of the government in Rome. So there's a lot of theater, but the actual uh, confront moment of confrontation never seems to come. I think the uh, the problem also uh, with the mini bots issue that Marta mentioned, much as with the attempts to appoint a pro uh, Euro exit, is that it's precisely that making preparation, which would allow Italy to join the to sorry to leave the Euro, would pr provoke all sorts of disastrous economic consequences immediately. So uh, what's, what's kind of difficult is in judging its behavior and whether uh, the Lega is looking to take it out of the Euro, is that if it really was trying to do it, we wouldn't see much evidence that it was trying to. It would be trying to uh, keep quiet about its plans. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm not convinced that its uh, base is really looking for a... Uh, a jump into the abyss outside of the eurozone. I think it's uh, much more a matter of uh, seeking a kind of symbolic clash, which um, which revives a bit of Italian nationalism. But I think it's uh, somewhat uh, inconsequential at the level of its uh, engagement with the EU. Uh, it should, should also be said that although Salvini has indeed talked about entering the European Parliament to change Europe from within, you know his block enjoyed a victory in the European elections, but it still represents only about 10% of all of the uh, MEPs. You know, it's a bit like Greens saying, you want to go with, into Europe and change things from within. Like he certainly has a power of disruption, an ability to try and change the discourse, set the tone on issues like migration, but there's not really any prospect of him being integrated into the kind of governance structures like pro-European centre-right don't really have any interest in uh, deals with him. So I think uh, there's a lot more noise than uh, real uh, effect. Salvini, of course, has not resolved the underlying contradictions that facilitated his and Lega's rise to power in the first place. And so my last question is, first, what will the trajectory or what might the trajectory of Italian political economy look like under this government? And second, given that trajectory will, given that the contradictions have not been resolved, will, will likely be pretty uh, rocky and not lead to any actual amelioration of people's, you know, pretty shitty material conditions of existence in Italy. W does that hold out any hope for far-right failure and for an emergence, a re-emergence of the Italian left? Well, obviously, we are still in times of transitions, and the idea of imagining any stable political landscape uh, uh, in Italy and in Europe in general, uh, while the structure of uh, uh, the European economy is still what it is, with the austerity policies and all the things we, that we know of the of the EU apparatus, um, it's, it's kind of impossible to imagine, okay? Uh, in the last uh, five years, we've seen the very quick rise and then fall of a series of uh, political leaders in Italy. Uh, in the last European election in 2014, 
the Democratic Party of Matteo Renzi got more than 40% of the votes and then collapsed. Last year, uh, Di Maio and the Five Star Movement in the national election got more than 30% of the votes and collapsed. Um, so I, I'm not really sure that uh, Salvini uh, is better suited than these uh, others uh, to last long. There are structural issues that make it very difficult to govern for anyone okay, in the Italian government at this point. Italy needs massive Keynesian policies in order to have any possibility to recover from the crisis. And these Keynesian policies are systematically denied uh, by the European commissions and by other European governments. And there is still room to do something. I'm not saying that there isn't room to do anything, a different progressive government, even inside these very strict limits, uh, could uh, uh, put in place some redistributive policies and so on, sure. Uh, but still, the idea of uh, having a massive impact on the economy, uh, it's very difficult to make concrete. It is true, though, that Salvini is not as completely unprepared as Di Maio and, and Renzi. Okay, he's more solid in ideological terms. He can rely on something which is stronger than uh, digital populism or uh, weak liberalism, which is nationalism, which is something that has stronger roots uh, in uh, in society. Uh, so it will. He will probably last longer than the others, although I really don't see any space for stabilization, for normalization. There is a tendency now to say we are going back towards a traditional center-left, center-right politics, but it's not the case yet. We are going in that direction, but still I don't see anything stable. I see Salvini as subject to the turmoils of the current crisis as any other, although he's more prepared than uh, Di Maio and Renzi were. And I still see space for significant uh, uh, social opposition to him. His political opposition is very weak, but as Marta said earlier, the only thing that still exists in Italy, in Italian society, that has capacity to mobilize is the trade union system. And I think the only hope we have is really in a, a renewed wave of popular mobilization, which is able to threaten um, Salvini's support uh, in the lower strata society. Marta? This is a, oh, there is hope. Obviously, also because during the last 10 days, we hadn't a huge social campaign against austerity. And this is something that in political terms could be capitalized, also because we are uh, more than 10 years after uh, the, the big crisis, right? At the same time, I agree on the fact that we are still in a transition. And using this everyday 24 hours out of seven days uh, rhetoric and propaganda helps Salvini being there. But in terms of uh, the political economy of Italy, what I think was going on since now, something uh, 20 years ago uh, until now, and uh, even tomorrow morning, is this uh, on one end austerity in terms of uh, social rights, welfare system, uh, and etc. And on the other end, all these pro-corporate uh, and businesses policies, which means, as I said, public procurement, which means intervention by the state uh, in favor of firms, but at the same time cut on uh, taxes, on uh, corporate profits, uh, something that we already had during the last 10 years, but that still Salvini is proposing uh, in a more acute way with this uh, flat tax uh, 
for example. So in, in so in economic terms, we won't have a recovery, although the, because in Keynesian terms, it's not just public spending spend as such, but we don't still have any industrial policy in place, nor in ideal uh, terms. So I think that this could be something that uh, can push a huge mobilization, social mobilization through uh, trade unions, but also all what is left. But at the same time, I think that Salvini got uh, another card to, to play, actually. That is, if we break this government, he knows that today he can go with the uh, center-right. So once more with Berlusconi and the other far-right party. So maybe he knows that in any case, this right coalition can still lead the, the country. But at the same time, there is hope for an opposition. It is true that if the opposition is what we have seen uh, during the last 20 years against Berlusconi, this personalization of the opposition, we can break the hope just now, right now. Because if it's just the opposition to Salvini as a bad person, sort of like certain variants of liberal opposition to Trump, rather than something that indicts the very system that produced Salvini, there's there's little hope there. Exactly. Also because of, for example, just a, a tiny example. Okay, he's been persecuted because of these uh, 49 uh, millions of uh, euros uh, he took and stole actually from public finances. So people start charging him and insulting him because of this. While in the same time, what we can see in the budget law is that he actually take 10 billion uh, from the welfare state and in general public expenditure that have been moved toward firms and not uh, in uh, education, mm-hmm. uh, health, etc. So social policies against these corporate policies. So this social and political uh, standpoint is not there and should be. David? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the recent changes in party structure the years of volatility we've seen, which Lorenzo mentioned, mean that we can't really predict that the Lega are going to last forever. Uh, certainly the fact that they seem to have outcompeted their rivals on the right does seem to put them in a strong position. But at the same time, there is opposition. Uh, I think it's unfortunate in a way that the, the Democratic Party has shown signs of life and will probably be able to channel a lot of the opposition towards itself, particularly if the if, particularly if the the debate or the the rivalry between center left and the the hard right remains on the level of p- politics of identity Europeanism nationalism and even immigration notwithstanding the Democrats own record on immigration uh, they will try and you know m- use the humanitarian sympathy with migrants to galvanize their own support much as for instance Hillary Clinton might do against and might have done against uh, Donald Trump. So, in fact, we've even seen recently some figures who had left the Democratic Party in the previous electoral cycle uh, to the left to try and create something new are now coming back into it under its leader, uh, Nicola Zingaretti, who doubtless represents something of a shift to the left as compared to Matteo Renzi, uh, although not very much. Uh, He's a bit like uh, the, you know, for British listeners, he's a bit like Ed Miliband compared to uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. There's a sort of rhetorical recognition that the party was too business aligned and that now it needs to listen to people on uh, low incomes. But overall, the party remains defined by liberal Europeanism against the far right. David Broder, Lorenzo Zamponi and Marta Fana, thank you all very much. 
Thank you Thank for you. having us. Thank you. David Broder is the Europe editor for Jacobin, an editor at Jacobin Italia, and a historian of French and Italian communism, currently writing a book on the crisis of Italian democracy in the post-Cold War period. Lorenzo Zamponi is an assistant professor of sociology at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence, working on social movements and political participation, and a co-editor of Jacobin Italia. Marta Fana is a researcher in economics, the author of It's Not Work, It's Exploitation, and an editor of Jacobin Italia. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that all forms of the state have democracy for their truth, and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thierry Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. 